Thank you, ladies, for that song. We appreciate the music this morning and the love of God, songs about the love of God, how deep the Father's love for us. And a great reminder that even in the valley, God is good. And I know that we've been going through a valley, and some of you have struggled more than others. And it's a good reminder today to remind us that God is always good. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning. Please turn to Romans chapter 8. And I'd like to remind you of that again. Romans chapter 8, and we're going to look at verse 31. And then we're going to look at the rest of the chapter as a supporting evidence of this great statement, if God before us, if God before us. You know, we sometimes think that God is a God of judgment and a God of wrath, which he is when it is necessary. But he's also a God of love and a God of caring and and a, a God of mercy and grace. And we need to be reminded from time to time that God is actually for us. He, he is wanting our uh, success to, to come out in our lives. And you know, the Lord Jesus Christ prayed in John chapter 17 that his joy might be fulfilled in us. And so it's important that we remind ourselves of that once in a while. And in the valley, know that God is good. So let's look at Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, and I'll direct your attention down to verse 31. He says this, the apostle Paul is writing to the church at Rome And he says, what shall we say then to these things? These things are the supporting evidence that we will look at in just a moment of this coming statement. What shall we say then to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? Let's pray together. Our Father, we love you. We thank you and praise you today for the great reminders of song that God does love us. And uh, even furthermore, we have considered how deep the Father's love is for us. Lord, I pray that you remind us a third time as we look into the scriptures and are reminded of the fact that God is for us. Lord, I just pray that you'd speak to our hearts. I need your help today. And so I pray that you might fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, that you would speak through me. And Lord, more importantly, Lord, would you bless your holy word? Would you take the word of God and speak to hearts with it? Lord, sometimes we get caught up on the messenger and how we fumble over our words or perhaps a personal dislike of someone. And I just pray, Lord, that we'd be able to put that aside and and just look to the Word of God and allow it to speak to our hearts today. So, Father, help us, we pray. I surrender to you. Well, thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's look at that verse again, Romans chapter 8 and verse 31. The Bible says, What shall we say then to these things? If God before us, who can be against us? Paul is making a summary statement in Romans chapter 8 is one of the great doctrinal uh, chapters of the Bible. And if we were to look at it and we're going to go through it verse by verse this morning, you'd be reminded of many things. The Bible says in verse 1, uh, there's therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. We're reminded that nothing can separate us from the love of God. And Paul likes to summarize and he says this, What shall we say to these things? How do we conclude and how do we summarize these great truths of the word of God? And he says this, if God before us, who can be against us? I'm reminded as we look at this scripture of an illustration in my mind of a, a great race and somebody is running that race and there's, there's people on the sidelines cheering them on and as they come around that final bend and they head for the home stretch towards the finish line, people begin to cheer and they begin to cheer and they begin to cheer even louder and, and sometimes 
They're cheering a losing effort. Somebody might get past right near the finish line and somebody might stumble a little bit as they're coming in from fatigue and, and they fall behind and perhaps they don't place. They don't finish first, second, or third and they end up falling back a little bit and yet those people still cheer like they came in first. You know, often parents are like that. I coached ball for many, many years and, and I can remember even in t-ball when the kids were just four and five years old and and parents going crazy uh, because their kids uh, had scored a run or they got a hit or whatever and we would we in in the league we were in when they were four or five and and just t-ball every batter got to hit every inning it was it was a strange kind of a setup but they wanted to encourage the kids so everybody got to hit and whoever hit last always got a home run because they could run all the way home. Everybody had to score. Everybody had to go run. And uh, so they never really kept score or anything at that age. They were just trying to teach fundamentals. And so we made sure that we always put a different kid last that inning. That way every kid over the course of the summer got to hit a home run. And it just kind of helped them. And the parents would go crazy and cheer for them. And we knew that they really didn't hit a home run. Sometimes it didn't get past the pitcher. Sometimes they just knocked it off the tee and kids would pick it up and run to first with it and get them out or whatever. But we would just run the bases anyway and the parents would cheer like it was so important. And I, you know, when I think about our father, when the Bible says, if God be for us, he's like that parent in the stands. And I don't mean to demean God. God is so much more than that. But he's like that one that is always cheering for us, always in our corner, always prodding us along and trying to remind us that he loves us. And the Bible says, if God be for us, but I want you to focus on two words in that verse, verse 31, what shall we say then to these things? What are these things? What are these things that cause Paul to say, God is for us? And so who can be against us? I want to give you some supporting evidence if we can. And so let's turn back to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 this morning. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, as we look at some supporting evidence, the first thing I want you to notice is what Christ does for us. What Christ does for us. Number one, we see in verse 1, we see the removal of condemnation. The removal of condemnation. The Bible says, there is therefore now... No condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We have the removal of condemnation. But notice the word there, the fourth word in the verse, there is therefore now. That implies that at one time there was. We walked in condemnation. We were condemned already because we did not know Jesus Christ as our Savior uh, the Bible says in John chapter 3 and verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But the very next verse talks about if we do believe not, we are condemned already. Before we knew Jesus Christ, we walked in condemnation. In other words, we would receive the full penalty of our sins. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. An eternal separation from God in a place called hell. But praise the Lord, when Jesus Christ saved me, there is now no condemnation to them. And here's the key, which are in Christ 
Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And I'm here to tell you today that I understand, just like the apostle Paul understood, and I know that you understand, that the flesh and the spirit are always warring against one another. It's a constant battle. But when we are in Christ Jesus, we have the opportunity to walk in the spirit and understand that the flesh can be crucified with the affections and lusts thereof. And we can walk victorious in Jesus Christ. But the good news is this. He has removed all condemnation. Turn, if you will, to Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1. I want you to see something there this morning. You know, condemnation is a damnatory sentence. That's literally what it means. A damnatory sentence. We are condemned to death. Condemned to eternity without Christ. But good news is this, that if you're in Christ Jesus, the removal of condemnation has already taken place. Look at Revelation chapter 1 and verse 5. Jesus, or John the Revelator, is addressing uh, the churches of Revelation. And he says this in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of our sins and to, uh, sorry, to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Look at Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. And I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made their white, made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see, when we are washed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are made clean, we are made white, and the Bible says there is therefore now no condemnation. Look at Romans chapter 8 and verse 2. There is a description here that describes the implications of having condemnation removed. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemns sin in the flesh. You know, though I am still living in this body, this body of sin, this body of flesh, this body of carnality, I still fail. I still sin. But the Bible says, when I trusted Jesus Christ as my Savior, I became a spiritual being. Ephesians 2 reminds us, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Quickened means made alive. We now have a spiritual life. And the Bible says the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The law no longer condemns me. Oh yes, I'll fail from time to time and I will, I will sin from time to time. But the Bible says that Jesus Christ has paid all the debt of my sin. He has washed me and cleansed me and made me whole. And he now chastens me as a child rather than condemns me as a lost sinner. That's the good news of the gospel. Notice verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. But they that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, and to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. 
So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwelleth in you. As long as we live, we're going to have this war in the flesh. But greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, pushing us forward. And that's why Paul is able to say, if God be for us, who can be against us? We're talking about what Christ does for us. And I want you to notice the next thing. First of all, we see the removal of condemnation. Number two, we see we're raised up as children. Raised up as children. Look at verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. That reminds me immediately of John chapter 1 and verse 12. That says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. We have been born into the family of God. We are born again of incorruptible seed, the word of God. The Bible says that Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. But Romans chapter 8 also tells us we are adopted into the family of God. It gives us both a birthright and a legal standing. Notice what he says in verse 14. We are the sons of God, verse 15. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear... But ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If I could encourage you to do something right where you are, I hope you have your Bibles open. Mark verse, six, verse 16. That is such an important verse that does, deals with our eternal security in Christ. You know, if the devil ever tries to make you doubt, understand this. You are a child of God. You have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. His Holy Spirit has sealed you unto the day of redemption. So when the devil attacks, he cannot steal your salvation. But he'll try to make you doubt your eternal security. Verse 16 helps us with this. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. One of the things the Holy Spirit does is when he indwells us, he constantly reminds us that we belong to Christ, that we are his children. Look at verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Notice what Christ does for us. He removes condemnation, but he also raises us up as children. And we notice in verse 15 the word adoption, and we understand that to be a legal standing. Some might say, well, being born is enough. And, and I would agree with you, but the world cannot see a, a, a birth. They, they may not see the resemblance from time to time. And the truth is, we may not see the resemblance. We may not feel like we are saved. But we have a document today that says we have also been adopted into the family of God. We have a proof that says to us, signed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are part of his family. So it gives us legal sanding because sometimes we just don't have a family resemblance. But then we see also we have a birthright. 
The Bible says in verse 16, the spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. Friend, the fact that you're part of the family of God, both born again and adopted into his family, gives you all the benefits of both. You are his child today. We are raised up as children. We're talking about what Christ does for us. We're still on our first point, so let's move very quickly. We see the removal of condemnation. We see that we are raised up as children. The third thing we see is that we're redeemed from corruption. Redeemed from corruption. Look at verse 18. Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will, uh, and whom he, will he hardeneth. Thou wilt say then unto me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? Nay, but, O man, who art thou that repliest? I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm sorry. Let's go back a verse. Verse chapter 18, or chapter 8, and, and look at verse 18. Page flipped on me by accident. I'm sorry about that. Uh, look at Romans chapter 8, verse 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestations of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen is not hope. Notice that we are redeemed from corruption. We're talking about what Christ does for us. Why Paul could make that summary statement, if God be for us, who can be against us? And notice what it says all the way back in verse 18. I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He's talking about our body. Yes, we are suffering at times. We are broken down and we are growing older and we feel the pain that comes along with age. But he says, we, it's not worthy right now to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. He says in verse 19, the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made not subject to vanity. And so he says in verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption. We're going to put off this body. And one day, we'll have a glorified body that lives forever with Jesus Christ. When I read these verses, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians 4.17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul wrote in another place, that we groan, earnestly waiting to be clothed upon. In other words, to put off this body of mortal flesh and to put on a spiritual body, that body that is raised incorruptible, that we might forever live with our Lord in a perfect place called heaven. 
So what does Christ do for us? What caused Paul to say, if God be for us, who can be against us? He removes all condemnation. He has raised us up as children. He's redeemed us from corruption. But Romans 8 goes on to say some things that Christ does in us. Some things that Christ does in us. What does Christ do in us? Let's look at the first, verse 26. He prays for our failings. He prays for our failings. I think as we go through verse by verse, it starts to make the picture clearer, doesn't it? You say, well, if God is for us, is God really for us? Well, he's removed condemnation. He's raised us up to, to live like we are children. He has redeemed our mortal bodies from corruption. And now he's praying for me. He's praying for my failings. Notice what it says in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray. For as, ought we, for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he, the Spirit, that searcheth the hearts, knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know... That all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. The Bible says in verse 26, he hath helpeth our infirmities. The word infirmities means our weaknesses and our frailties. You know, God could have given you a perfect body now. God could have given you a, a perfect mind right now. He could have given you a perfect heart right now. Instead, he chose to give us a free will. He wanted us to love him voluntarily. He wanted us to notice his handiwork and his goodness and his glory and his honor and his praise. And He wanted us to respond appropriately by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. But all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone has gone after his own way. Man sinned in the Garden of Eden and death by sin passed upon all men. And now we need a redeemer, a savior. And so God prays for us. And if you're a child of God, the Bible says the Spirit of God searcheth your hearts because you don't know how to pray. I I don't mean to say that we don't have the ability to pray. We don't know have the knowledge to fall upon our knees before God and go boldly in the throne room of grace. I don't believe the Bible is saying that. What it's saying is that there's sometimes there's things that overtake us that we just don't know how to deal with. We don't know how to express the deepest sorrows and griefs of our heart. We don't know how to deal or what even to ask for it when when a need arises in a certain situation. And so we struggle to form words, but the Holy Spirit comes along and he searches our heart and he lines it up with the will of God and he lets out groans that aren't even able to utter. But he speaks to God on our behalf. He prays for our weakness. I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12 when I think of this thought. The Apostle Paul said, I prayed thrice for this thorn to be removed from me. But God says, my grace is sufficient for thee. God is praying for you. The Holy Spirit is interceding on your behalf. Friend, if you've ever wondered, is God for me? He prays for you. He's upholding you. He's encouraging you, and he knows you inside and out better than you know yourself.
And so he prays for our failings. But we see also next, we're talking about what God does in us, what Christ does in us. He prays for our failings, but he plans for our future. Notice verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. God has a plan for your life. When we talk about different doctrines in the Bible and doctrines that are outside the Bible, and many are taken up today with the doctrine of John Calvin, Calvinism. They believe that God, in, in hyper-Calvinists, believe that God has predestinated some to go to heaven and some to go to hell. Here's what I know, because the Bible says so. God has predestinated us to be conformed to the image of his Son. In other words, if you're a child of God today, if you know Christ, God has a plan, and he wants you to be more like Jesus. That's your future. They say, well, I'm praying about what my plans are next month or next year, or I have a five-year plan. I'm here to tell you this. No matter what your plans are, God's plan is always that you'll become more and more like Jesus every day. That's God's plan for your life. The funny thing is, the more we become like Jesus, the more our other plans come in focus. God begins to guide our paths. Don't forget, he's praying for you. And the Spirit is searching your heart, and God knows what you want already. And he's saying that also besides that, God is working all things together for good. God can do better in your life than you could ever plan for yourself if we would just commit ourselves and surrender to the fact that God wants you to be conformed to the image of his son. Conformed means having the same form as another. It's like a jello mold. You ever use one of those? I don't think people use them much anymore. But if you've ever made jello or made a cake or anything, it comes out the same shape as the pan. That's what conforming is. God wants us to look like his son. But before you can experience confirmation, you must experience transformation. This is addressed to born-again believers in Christ. I want you to notice another thing he does in us. Well, this is, this is good. He prays for our failings. He plans for our future. But he pronounces you fit. Verse 30 says, Moreover, whom he did predestinate, then he also, them he also called, and whom he called... Them he also justified. In whom he justified them, he also glorified. You know, to be called into service who he called, you have to be pronounced fit first. Fit to serve God. You, you might be at home today saying, well, I'm, who's fit? I'm not fit. If God knew my heart, I remember Adrian Rogers once saying, if you could see in my heart, you wouldn't let me be your pastor. I believe that's true, but every man, woman, or child that ever lived, that if others could see into our heart, would they want to be our friends? Because we are a sinful, frail creature. But here's what God says. I've called you, but I've also justified you. Justified in the sight of God means to be pronounced fit. Our sins have been forgiven. And yes, we fail, and yes, we fall. Think about this. King David committed adultery and murder to cover it up. And yet he was a man after God's own heart because his sins were forgiven. Christ cleansed him and justified him and pronounced him fit. I don't know about you, but that humbles me. 
to think that I get to stand and preach the word of God, that I get to teach others, all because of the finished work of Calvary, not because of anything I have done, not because I went to Bible college or got a degree, not because I try to study the Bible and understand its deepest truths, not because of any of those things, but simply because Christ in his mercy and his grace reached down and took an old sinner, forgave me, cleansed me, and justified me and pronounced me fit. That's what he does in us. That's why Paul said, if God be for us, who can be against us? You know, Paul said that great statement in verse 31, and we've made it all the way to verse 31 now. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? But you know, it's almost like he wasn't done. And so he says a few more things, and I, I want you to notice some things that Paul says after verse 31. I'll give you three more. What Christ does before us. Before you ever came to Christ, God had a plan. God had set up something in his son, Jesus Christ, that he would redeem the world for anybody that would come to him in faith and trust him. His blood is sufficient. So what did he do before us? Notice number one in verse 32, he delivers us through his supply. The Bible says, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? The fact that God was willing to give us his son to take care of our, our spiritual needs, our greatest needs, our need of a savior, should help us understand that he will take care of our smallest needs. I say, I've titled this section, What Christ Does Before Us, because it was 2,000 years ago that Christ said, I, I, I spared not my own son and I will take care of everything. He already knew that he wanted to supply for us. Philippians chapter 3, or 4, verse 19 says, But my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. 2 Peter 1 verse 3 says, According as his divine power hath given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Friends, are you wondering today, is God for me? He supplies your every need. We just need to learn how to trust him. Number two, he defends us through his son. In eternity past, God devised salvation's plan. He knew that man would sin, given a free will. He knew that man would need a Savior. And so he sent his son, Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. He also knew that when he saved us, he would doggedly defend us forever. You know, the accuser of the saints went before Job. And he said, you've given Job everything. He says, surely if you take away his health, he'll curse you. If you take, care of his, take away his family, he'll curse you. If you take away all that he has, the blessing in the hand of God, he'll curse you. So God allowed it. And the Bible says in all things, Job sinned not with his mouth. It's amazing that Job understood, though, what so many of us forget. God is on our side. 
and he defends us, and he upholds us. Notice what the word says in verse 33. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. How dare you condemn a brother in Christ? I believe he's speaking to the old accuser, Satan himself. But perhaps it is spilling over and affecting the hearts of others today as it did in in the book of Romans some 2,000 years ago. As Paul says, what right do we have? How, How proud and arrogant we must be to lay anything to the charge of God's elect. Why? Because God has pronounced them fit. God has justified them. We had to be very, very careful in looking down at others because but for the grace of God go I. I am keenly aware of my own failings. And yes, we will preach and I will preach against sin and I will preach against my own sin. And a lot of times when I preach, it hurts me the most. Well, friends, we must remind ourselves of this. Christ is defending us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. It is Christ. You, you wonder today, is God for me? He's yelling to the world, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? Because I'm the one that justified. I died for their sins. Verse 34 goes on, who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died. Yea, rather that is risen again who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. The book of Revelation lays eternity out for us. It helps us to see that great white throne judgment. The Bible says the books will be opened. And I know that one of the first cast into the lake of fire will be the devil. I know that. I see that in the Bible. But in my mind, I see a scenario That when those books are open, Satan himself, who's already in the lake of fire, and I'm just dramatizing this a little bit, standing there holding a clipboard. Now maybe that clipboard is taken out of his hand. Satan is cast in the lake of fire. But others look at that book, and it's got all the dirty deeds, all the sins. Christ takes all that. And he throws it aside. Who is he that lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, is risen from the dead. And if you are washed in the blood of Christ, even the the law was nailed to the cross, it says in Colossians chapter 2. The ordinances that condemned us. He defends us through his son. You say, oh, is God for me? Is God for me? How can you say he's not for you with all that he is doing? What does Christ do before us? He delivers us through his supply. He defends us through his son. Look at this. He delights us through his security. Christ wants more for your life than just to know you're forgiven. You know, I... I'm the same way. I, sometimes I hang my head and say, I'm nothing but a dirty old sinner saved by grace. 
I know my heart, and I know that I failed, and I know that I have to spend time at an altar. I know I need to confess my sins and get right with God, and I know that I'm keenly aware of that, as I hope each of us are. But Jesus prayed that, our, that his joy might be fulfilled in us. He wants us to have abundant life. He wants us to know the joy of knowing Jesus. Notice what he says in this next verse, verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Paul has gone through some pretty heavy doctrine in proving his case that God is for us. But he wanted to bring some joy to the situation as well. He wanted to remind them that we are eternally saved, that we can never be separated from the love of Christ, tribulation or distress, and understand these early Christians were fleeing for their lives and hiding in caves and being burnt in Nero's Nero's gardens. And and we understand the, the persecution and the tribulation they were facing. And he says, I want you to understand this. As you're hanging in that cage and somebody's about to light your feet on fire and burn your body, as you've given your life as a martyr for Christ, Nothing will separate you from the love of God. Oh, sometimes we get discouraged. But I want you to know today that God is for you. If God be for us, and here's here's the other part of the verse. I haven't even preached this, and I, I don't have the time to today. Who can be against us? Who can be against us? You've got God on your side. He's pulling for you. He's cheering you on. More than that, I believe Hebrews 12 talks about a great cloud of witnesses watching the race that we are running. And Christ is right in the center. As we look to heaven, like Stephen did while he was being stoned, we can see Jesus through spiritual eyes, standing at the right hand of the Father, saying, it's almost over. Keep going. I love you. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment right where we are. Could I encourage you to give thanks today? If you're a child of God, would you give thanks for the reminder that God is for us? Maybe there's one today that would say, Pastor, I'm not sure I have all those benefits in my life. I'm not sure I'm I'm convinced that God is for me. Here's something you need to consider. Verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us who these benefits are for. It is to those which are in Christ Jesus. That's the context of the whole passage. Are you in Christ? Do you know Christ today? And when the Bible says the Spirit searcheth our hearts, do you have the Spirit of God? Have you received Christ as your Savior? You might believe in your head, but you must receive Him in your heart. 
It is not just simply a decision. So many have said we must make a decision for Christ. And yes, we, we must make a, a conscious decision to trust in Jesus. But it is so much more than that. It's receiving Christ into our hearts and our lives and allowing him to transform us from the inside out. Only then can we can be conformed to the image of Christ. We'd like to help you today. If there's one that would say, Pastor, I'm not sure I'm saved. I don't know Jesus Christ. Would you call the church? Our number here is 519-426-8421. You can also go to BethelBaptistSimcoe.ca. And there you will find all of our extensions and all of our email addresses. And we'd be more than happy to help you come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ by having a relationship with him. The one who loves you, paid the price for your sins when he died upon the cross of Calvary. And friend, when you know Jesus Christ, you can be reconciled to God. That fall that took place some 6,000 years ago in the Garden of Eden is wiped away. By the blood of Jesus Christ, and he reconciles us, brings us back to a loving relationship with our Father God. You can have all of that today, and you can know for sure that God is for you if you'll simply put your faith and trust in him. Let's have a word of prayer, and then I'll give you a couple of announcements before we close. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful mercy and grace. We thank you for the reminder that you love us so much that you're not just some far-off God, who is not invested in our lives, but you are constantly cheering for us, that you are for us, that you have made us right, and you're constantly turning away the accusers because you only see the blood of your dear Son. Father, I pray that you would comfort us and help us with these thoughts of Scripture today. And if one does not know Jesus, if they've never trusted in him, we pray, Lord, that they'd put their faith and trust in Christ today before it's eternally too late. Father, we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.